listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I hope you survived Halloween. You have survived the sugar crash. We have a big, big show ahead and two very big stories to begin with. Both will have very big impacts going forward in this country and in this city. We have a national story and a local story. We're going to begin in Alberta, and then we are going to move to the eastern waterfront of Toronto. We'll begin with Encana, and then we go to Sidewalk Labs. One of Calgary's oldest and largest energy companies is moving its corporate headquarters from Calgary to the United States. Encana has decided to decamp south. And not only that, it will change its name to Oventiv, which sounds like a decongestion. Perhaps that's an easier way to raise money from hedge funds if you sound like something that would help the sinus. Alberta's energy minister, Sonia Savage, has blamed guess who on this? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The signal that he has sent on the importance of oil and gas to Canada has been abysmal. And it's very difficult for investors to want to uh, have confidence in Canada. Danielle Smith is a host with Global News Radio in Calgary and was the former leader of the Wild Rose Alliance. Joins me on the line. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Alan. So how big of a deal is this in Alberta? Oh, boy. Everyone was talking about it wall-to-wall yesterday, and we we kept trying to bring on analysts to see if there was any kind of silver lining in this story. Because you could potentially argue, well, if they're going down to the United States, getting listed on the New York Stock Exchange for the purpose of raising money, maybe some of that will come back to Canada so that we can create jobs here. But that's a no-go. I mean, uh, in Canada, now all vintive, uh, it has has just, has started moving their operations down to the United States several years ago. Their in their C-suite, their executive team, has been down there for the last couple of years. They made a major purchase of a, a Texas-based company for 5.5 billion earlier this year, and so they are just looking at the opportunity not being in Canada. They're looking at the opportunity being in the United States. And the reason it is such a blow is that in Canada is such a Canadian company. It came from the old Canadian Pacific um, access to, to mineral rights as they developed the transnational railway. They spun off a company that ultimately became pan-Canadian. It merged with an, another homegrown Alberta company, Alberta Energy. And between the two of them, they uh, they created two really in, important companies for our, our oil sands in Canada and Synovus. And so for them to decide that Canada, number one, is no longer worth being the main source of their investment attention, and number two, that the Canada name in the actual name is a liability to raising funds. That is a big blow, but it's. I think what we're all waiting for now is what happens next. If they're going to bail out, who else is going to? How much blame are Albertans putting on Justin Trudeau for this? Well, I know that the, I, I have to be fair because the company president has not put the blame on Justin Trudeau, but I think it's been successive policies by governments that has made it unattractive to invest in Canada. We can go back to even Stephen Harper making changes to accelerated depreciation and income trust. We can look at Ed Stelmack in Alberta and the chaos he caused with the royalty framework review and Alison Redford bringing in new programs to put money aside for, uh, for, for environmental cleanup, which is excessive for some of our small businesses that ran them under, to the changes now that we have where it looks like, if you l- listen to uh, Stéphane Gilbeau, the new star candidate for the Liberals in Quebec, 
Bill C-69 was designed to ensure that the, uh, that no pipelines ever get built again. But, and Danielle, also- your, your, the minister in Alberta is blaming, you know, Justin Trudeau. I mean, you, you, you point out some real facts there, that it's gone through a number of different political stripes that have handled this hot potato. But it seems that Albertans want to blame Justin Trudeau for it, or at least the Alberta government does. Hey, look, I blame all of them. Um, and the, I think the latest blows with with not being able to get pipelines built and the ban on being able to export our product off the B.C. coast, at some point you throw up your hands and say, we just can't work in this environment anymore. And so it's going to take a lot of work at all different levels to try to repair the damage. And I think that Justin Trudeau could start by repairing the damage if he listens to what Jason Kenney and Scott Moe have to say and completely rework that Bill C-69 and that tanker ban off the uh, B.C. coast. And then we can start talking about how we re build Canada's reputation as a good place to invest. Danielle, great to talk to you. Thanks for being on the program. Yeah, thanks, Alan. All right, from energy companies, now we move to big tech, and we move closer to home now. The announcement of an agreement between the public agency Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs is a big deal for this city. It is incremental, absolutely. We are not there yet. There are more steps, but this is a significant one. And it's a significant step not only for Toronto, but perhaps cities worldwide as they negotiate with tech giants like Google and its sister companies like Sidewalk. Big tech blinked in this case. That is the takeaway from the Global Mail's architecture critic, Alex Bozakovich, who joins me now on the line. Hi, Alex. Hey, Alex. What is Sidewalk giving up here? Well, essentially, they uh, more or less everything, or at least all of the uh, most sort of um, unprecedented and uh, controversial asks that were in their big proposal that was released earlier this year. Um, they've agreed to different and more favorable rules about data privacy, about what happens to intellectual property that comes out of this new neighborhood. And then, of course, they scaled back their ask from looking at a larger area of about 200 acres to the original 12 acres for which they were sort of explicitly um, asked to come up with a development proposal. It's a big shift. Sidewalk had said previously, even though that it wasn't in the initial RFP, that they needed scale, that scale was absolutely necessary to be able to make this project work. They had to have all this extra land. They had to have some kind of uh, subway or public transit into the area. And now they're saying, well, no, it's fine. We don't need that. That is a pretty big about face. It is. And it's it's notable. I spoke with uh, Dan Doctoroff, their CEO, yesterday, and he told me that uh, they are now looking at how they might be able to achieve their financial and innovation goals on this smaller site. And they think that they can do that. So, you know, that sort of raises the question, which I think many of us have already been asking, whether um, a lot of the sort of grand statements that Sidewalk has come in with and the grand asks maybe deserve a little bit more scrutiny than they've been getting. And is this perhaps instructive because we are not the only city in the in the world who is dealing with this kind of thing, trying to negotiate with big tech on various different projects like this, although this was this is really an original one. But this is a case of negotiations where they just come in and ask for the moon, and you have to, as a city, say, no, thanks, thanks, but no thanks, and see what will happen. I think that's right. And it's a bit of a complicated situation because when they were first, uh, when they first made their proposal to develop an area in uh, Toronto's waterfront two years ago, they were responding to a really broad 
ask from the agency Waterfront Toronto that included not only just this development of this first 12 acres, but also open the door to a much broader innovation agenda. Um, and I'm not sure that that was precisely well defined at that point, but you know, the, the door has been opened to them. I think the real question that we have to face now um, as a city and as other cities do is to figure out where exactly the intersection of tech and urbanism is, what it looks like, and what applications of digital technologies in cities are actually desirable. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of, how shall I put this, um, there's been a lot of confetti thrown over the last couple of years, a lot of um, obscuring of the details of what sidewalks proposals would look like. And I think now we have to start, uh, Waterfront does, and we all have to start looking hard at what exactly those tech solutions are and whether they are good or not. I think what is frustrating for so many of our listeners and so many who watch this is it is so incremental. It is so step-by-step, and we are not there now. But perhaps you could just sum up by giving me your odds on whether you think that this is more likely to actually come to fruition now than perhaps before Thursday. Well, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, they were at loggerheads, Waterfront, Toronto, and Sidewalk were. I mean, there was a, this was a showdown, and it's clear that Sidewalk um, backed out. So what happens now is I'm, I think very likely that something gets built. That, that first neighborhood, which is known as Keyside, that they're looking to build does happen in some form, and which, by the way, I think, you know, their vision for that neighborhood has a lot of attractive things about it. So the question is, what components of their innovation strategy, as they call it, actually get folded in. They have ideas for how streets should work, for how, you know, freight and waste um, would travel through the neighborhood, for a new district energy system. You know, some of these things are real things and will prove out and others will not. So I guess we will see in the next few years uh, which are, which is which. Alec Bozakovich, pardon me, is the Globe and Mail's architecture critic, and you can read his story about how big tech blinked in the Globe today. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate you being on the program. Thank you, Alex. Welcome back to the program. It is no secret that the Ford government has had a rough first year in government, but things apparently have changed. At least that is the indication from the government side, from the government benches. They've had allegations of cronyism. Dog this government, it is. Cost them a chief of staff. A number of those appointments have been overturned. You may remember Ron Tavener in that entire situation. Mr. Tavener appointed to head the OPP and then withdrew his name. There's been a general sense of hyper-partisanship as well in the House. Standing ovations. With the resumption of Queen's Park this week, can we expect more order in the House? Is that going to really happen? This week, I spoke with Government House Leader Paul Calandra. Paul Calandra, Government House Leader, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me, Alan. In the wake of the cronyism scandal that rocked the Ford government this year, this week you have announced measures to try and make political appointments more transparent. What are they? 
Yeah, we uh, we've taken some uh, some recommendations from the Auditor General. Uh, she uh, she talked about a cooling off period uh, with respect to, uh, when people were moving from uh, uh, ministers' offices into other uh, uh, appointments. Uh, we've taken that uh, uh, that advice from the Auditor General. Uh, we're also sending out uh, notice to all of the the chairs of all of the committees to update the skill set that's required uh, with respect to the uh, to the uh, appointments. Uh, we're uh, making sure that there is a, a much more expansive uh, conflict uh, of interest uh, screen uh, that uh, accompanies every one of these uh, every one of these appointments and some of the appointments will actually be referring to the uh, uh, the conflict commissioner just to make sure that uh, uh, they meet the standards the new higher standards that we're setting NDP leader Andrea Horvath had this to say after your announcement on Wednesday well, I suspect Mr. Calandro is making stuff up on the fly because we certainly have seen no evidence whatsoever that this government is changing its ways when it comes to appointments. In fact, quite the opposite. Ms. Horvath went on to say that your government has lost the trust of the people when it comes to political appointments. Your reaction to that? Uh, look, we're going to con constantly be striving to improve the public appointment process uh, in the province of Ontario. These are people who do really good work on behalf of the people of Ontario. We're going to reach across the aisle, as I said in the House uh, earlier this week. Uh, want to reach across the aisle where there are some suggestions that make sense. Uh, we will uh, we will look at that. But uh, as I said, we looked at some of the recommendations of the Auditor General. We're taking it back, looking at uh, uh, at how we can make get more open and transparent. Make sure the skill sets. Uh, match the types of appointments that uh, we're looking for. So I think we've made some great progress. We are going to continue to work with the Public Appointment Secretariat to just continuously evaluate this. Uh, the Minister of, uh, of uh, Responsible for Women's Issues has also asked if we could maybe take a look at it through a, a gender lens as well. So I think these are all good, uh, uh, good suggestions and we're going to move forward with that. Would you support gender equity in appointments? Uh, we're always looking for the best person for the job, but uh, as part of our was reaching out to uh, uh, to the the chairs, we want to make sure that yes, what what is the complement between men and women? Uh, uh, is there anything systemic in the system that uh, favors one uh, one over the other? So I think uh, that is all part of it. But what we've heard loud and clear is that uh, let's make sure that the, the right people in it for the right reasons. Let's take out any perceived conflict uh, of interest. The auditor general was very clear on a cooling off period. I think that made a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with where we've landed, but we are going to continuously strive to improve this. You mentioned reaching out across the aisle and much has been made about a, a new attitude, a new way of doing business on, on the government side. But the opposition says, well, if the policies are still the same, it really doesn't make much difference in the end, does it? Uh, look, we're going to continue to uh, to fight for the things that we won the election on: uh, balancing the budget, uh, uh, economic growth, jobs uh, and prosperity, changing our health care system, keeping our students in the in the classroom, building long-term care beds. We'll uh, disagree on a number of things. I have no doubt about that. Uh, but I think uh, it is incumbent upon us, all of us, as uh, as legislators, to make the the house work better, and that's what we're trying to do. In the first week back, we still have seen standing ovations, and there's been complaints that really not much. Has changed when it comes to that. Has there been communication either from the Premier's office or your office to caucus to tone it down? 
Uh, no, look, as I, as I said earlier in the, in the, in the week, uh, I think it'll take a little bit more to, uh, to, uh, to get uh, government members on their feet than it did in the first year. We were all brand new at that time and uh, just excited to get to work after 15 very long years of being in, in opposition. Uh, but I think the tone uh, has really, really changed in the legislature. It's not just on the conservative side, it's also on the opposition side. You see a lot less heckling uh, during, uh, during question period. Uh, I, uh, the, the, the quality of debate uh, when we're not in question period has been spectacular. I, I, I really commend all sides of the House for what I think has been a very good first, uh, first week back. Do you think we can sustain that goodwill? We have to. Uh, I think if we got one message out of the uh, the federal election, it's that people have no time or patience or tolerance uh, for uh, uh, the, uh, the type of behavior that they uh, that they would not uh, themselves uh, do in their daily daily business lives. So I think we can do better. And, and when, as I say, we, we're bringing the opposition uh, uh, and the independents into our House leaders meetings, and there seems to be goodwill all around to keep the spirit in the place, uh, keep the debate vigorous, you know, nobody wants to take the life out of the, the legislature, uh, but take the personal out of it. And I think we've done a good job uh, all sides this week of doing that. Government House Leader, Paul Calandra, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again, Alan. You can watch that interview on Focus Ontario this weekend, 5.30, Saturday on Global, and 11.30 Sunday morning. Hope to join you, hope you can join me that for that program this weekend. Well, it was a violent Halloween in the greater Toronto area this year. A triple stabbing, multiple shootings marring the night last night around 11.40 p.m. Police were in Toronto were called to a party at the corner of Madison and Lowther Avenues. According to police, a fight had broken out after a man and a woman were denied entry to the house. A man stabbed three people. Two others were hurt during the confrontation. One of the stabbing victims found without vital signs when officers arrived. All five are now in stable condition. And if you look at the numbers overall, at least 582 people have been injured in shootings so far this year across the city. 587 if you count those five teens who were shot near Eglinton and Keele. And if you have seen the video of that, the surveillance video that you can see on globalnews.ca from a stairwell, it shows what appears to be young teens, hoods up, emptying their guns, firing indiscriminately as they open a door and fire down a hallway in an apartment building. It is absolutely terrifying. But back to the numbers. Last year at this time, the number of shooting victims uh, on record to date was 451. Our current number, again, 587. That is 130 more people injured by guns so far this year. That according to police data. What does it all mean in terms of our city, in terms of the violence level, and what is happening on our streets? Joe Young Lee is a U of T professor and an expert in gun violence and joins me on the line. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. What are we seeing in terms of the level of violence? Is there something more systemic here or is it gang violence? What are you seeing? Well, I think the most defensible hypothesis when you look at these numbers over time, and again, like as you noted, the, the, the number of shootings this year is up over 130 uh, from last year. But if we go back to 2014, we've seen almost a threefold increase from the number of shootings on year to date. So as a sociologist, this suggests to me that the underlying conditions or what some politicians refer to as the root causes of gun violence have not abated or changed. And in fact, they might be getting worse. 
Um, we know time and time again through a, a number of different peer-reviewed studies that one of the strongest indicators for participation in violent crime during late adolescence, teenage years, and early adulthood is uh, neighborhood levels of poverty, uh, is systemic exclusion by race from the labor market. Um, you know, by and large, young people who are getting involved in crime, whether as victims or perpetrators, are young people who uh, do not necessarily envision a pathway through the world. Um, and so they get involved with groups that it, it might be gang related, it might not be gang related, uh, but they get involved with peers who are similarly oriented. And you know, if they have access to weapons, uh, which they do, that can lead to some, some very scary results. And, and as we look at that and the response from authorities and the response from governments, when we see uh, so much attention put on banning of handguns or restriction of firearms, what you're seeing from your perspective is, is that's not the cause. Um, I wouldn't rule it out as a cause. I think that access to firearms is one of many different causes or factors that we have to take into consideration here. Uh, the, the tricky thing, however, is that we don't know the origins of these guns. And so any discussion about effective policy levers um, has, to be res has to be responsive to that. Historically, we've found that most firearms used in crimes in Canada are coming from the United States. That's also true in Mexico. Uh, but we don't have systematic data on this. There are also police departments who, in the last couple of years, have reported that there's a higher proportion of guns that they're seizing during arrests that are um, sourced in Canada. So we have these two competing pictures, and we don't have this kind of complete long-term picture of where they're coming from. Ju Young Lee is a U of T professor. Thank you so much for joining me on the line. Thanks for having me. Public elementary teachers and education workers in Ontario have voted 98% in favor of a strike should it become necessary. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario says there's been no meaningful progress in talks. Here is the union president, Sam Hammond, calling the results of the vote an overwhelming mandate from ETFO's 83,000 members. It, it is a historic strike vote for ETFO as the largest teacher union in Canada. All right, I'm going to tell you something about strike votes, folks. If you're watching the news tonight, you're reading the news, and you're like, whoa, look at that, 83, wow, that's 98%. You know what? It doesn't make any difference. It is just a negotiating tactic. This is just a step. What you do is you get your membership to come out and vote overwhelmingly in favor of a strike, should you need to, and then you go to the negotiating table and you say, well, I've got a 98% strike mandate from our people. That's how that works. It's just it's just one it's one step. It, it never do you get a union saying, "Well, we're not going to give you a strike mandate," because that's not the point. Because what has to happen here is we still have to get to a point where we either have a deal or not have a deal. Many many steps to go. But I think what is important to note here is not the strike mandate, because that, as I say, not important. But Hammond would not lay out a timeline for a possible work stoppage, and the union says a number of conditions must be be met before it's in a legal strike position. No kidding, but here is more of the kind of incendiary remarks from the union that I don't think is particularly helpful. 
Premier Ford and his education minister are very fond of saying that they want kids to be in school. Well, so do ETFO's 83,000 members. But it seems that only teachers and education professionals, not this government, are concerned with the quality of publicly funded public education that our kids receive in classrooms across this province. This is hogwash. This is absolute hogwash. And it's constant, this sort of talk from the unions from all sides on the, on the union side saying, only we care about the kids. Only we care about the state of public education. That is simply not the case. You can't say that on the other side, on the school board side, on the government side, that nobody, well, we don't, we don't care about this at all. Look, both sides have vested interests here. And I think we could do well by ourselves and well by the process to just kind of take that out of there. ETFO is known as the most militant of the teachers' unions, so you can expect this kind of thing going forward. It's not great, but it's not the end of days that you might think it is. You know what's going on this weekend? The Royal Returns, the Royal Agricultural Winter Fair kicks off today at Exhibition Place. You got your Royal Horse Show. You got your RCMP musical ride, lots of food, farm exhibits. Here's the CEO of the fair talking about the Royal bringing the country to the city for 97 years now. It's that opportunity to put the phones down and and experience, like I say, the country coming to the city, but to see, feel, smell, taste things There's that a you lot can't of get at any other event. It stinks. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I love the Royal. Love it, but it stinks. It smells pretty bad. And here's another thing. if you Don't be a city slicker. Don't go in fancy footwear. Do not do that. Don't wear open toe. I'm going to tell you that, too. Or those Jordans you want to keep clean. Yeah, because there's there's poo, you know. There's poo at the Royal. That's what happens. Love it there. All right, here's my mea culpa. Uh, I said a number of times leading up to Halloween that police departments are going to try and scare the bejabbers out of you by saying kids are going to be getting THC-laced edibles in their bags. Don't forget about the old uh, razor blade in the apple. That's that's not going to happen. What you're going to get, your kids are going to get some THC lace candies. And I said, this is nothing but fear mongering, folks. This is not going to happen. Well, here from Nova Scotia, police in Nova Scotia are investigating after a parent found an edible cannabis product among their kids' Halloween candy. The RCMP say a parent from Coldbrook, Nova Scotia, told investigators their child was among eight kids who were trick-or-treating and they found a Halloween-themed package containing several jujube-type candies inside. Stickers on the back of the package included information regarding the product's THC content, as well as a logo featuring a marijuana leaf. So, if we take this at face value, that the parent actually found this in the bag, as I read this, I question that. Maybe I'm right after all that it didn't happen, but maybe it did happen. And if it did, I'm telling you right now in Nova Scotia what's happening is somebody is getting ready to go out to a wicked party tonight and is going to turn to their roommate and say, dude, I got this sweet thing. Hit the, grab the jubilee package. And he's going, what do you, what do you mean? Uh-oh. 
So, I guess parents look through the candy. So pleased to welcome Mira Estrada, who is the host of Cultured, which uh, airs right here Saturdays at 8 p.m. on this radio station, and Laura Hensley, who's a global online reporter and a regular guest on this program. Thank you to both of you for being here. Thank you. All right, thank you. let's kick it off with Laura with a story that you're working on, and that's about men, as they get older, having a real difficult time making friends. We, we just We don't make friends when we get to a certain age, do we? Well, there's a tendency for men as they age to lose close relationships. So, you know, when you're younger, you might be friends with people you play sports with, you go out with, but then you get married, you have kids, your priorities start to shift. And so there's a lot of evidence that shows men are just not as good as maintaining those friendships or making new friends as they get older. You know, it's an old bit. I think Seinfeld did it about, you know, I'm just not open. I'm just not accepting applications for friends <laughs> right now. I'm, I'm full up. And Mira, I, I, I'm always amazed by women in my life and, and their ability to make new friends and was like, well, yeah, so-and-so is my best friend we met last year. And I think my my best friends I've, I've, I've known since high school because Mm -hmm. I'm not taking new applications. (laughs) Yeah. So my best friends do are childhood friends, but I literally made a new friend at the airport last week. What? And she's coming on the show this week. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We make friends. I don't get that. I don't get how the difference... Do you notice that as as well, Laura? Oh, certainly. I'll make friends in exercise classes, at work, wherever. But I think it's also because women are more inclined to share personal information. And that's really bonding. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can be working out next to someone and say, I really like your shirt. Next thing you know, you're talking about your relationship problems. And (laughs) men don't necessarily seem to open up as quickly or readily as women do. This is why I Mm -hmm. watch sports and a lot of sports. Some sports I enjoy and other sports I just watch so I have something to talk about with other guys because that's it. It's sports and the weather. Beyond that, we're uncomfortable with feelings. Yeah, a lot of mental health experts say men, because of the ideas of masculinity and toxic masculinity, they think feelings are still a very feminine thing, and they have a really hard time opening up, especially if they're struggling, because they don't necessarily think it's something they can do with their male friends. My wife will tell me straight up, she's like, you know, you don't really like other people. If it wasn't for me and to talking to me, you wouldn't have anybody to talk to. And I think, well, that, that's mm-hmm. probably not too far off the truth that's like my husband too and he his best friend is like his childhood friend right tells him nothing nothing doesn't talk nothing. about anything <laughs> yep and, well, well that's but what do they talk about probably kind of sports surface, or yeah surface level things yep. i understand that i think a lot of guys listening will say that's the truth i mean for me i'm a big fan of talk therapy you want to You want to talk about stuff? I'm not going to talk to another guy about that. I'll pay somebody. I'll pay a therapist to talk about it. I think that's more important. Yeah. Well, would this make you feel comfortable talking to a woman with a mustache? It would. Well, (laughs) would I be at a circus at the time? Or what is that about? about? So we're we're in November, November. which is also Movember, November, which is when men start to grow the facial hair um, in support of prostate cancer. Sure. But this year, things are changing up, and... There's a call for women to grow oh. their facial hair in support of the cause. I'm going to suggest that's not a good idea. Uh, I, I worked hard 
to remove <laughs> any type of facial hair. And so I, I'm i not on board. I, I'm happy to support the cause don't, financially. Don't tell me that, Mira. We, as men, uh, we like to believe that none of that exists, that you don't work hard. It's all effortless. We love to sort of believe that. But it's not the case. It is not the case. <laughs> uh, Laura, before we move on, uh, you are going to file this story on the weekend. It'll be available on globalnews.ca about the men and their friendships and how important that is. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, Mira, you, you, you mentioned that. What, what else you got in our top entertainment and top uh, culture stories okay, this week? Okay, so how about this one? So Pamela Anderson, she would like Jails to go vegan. Oh, vegan. So there's a reason, Alan, that you do not want to get yourself into trouble. But she has good reason. <laughs> I don't want to go to jail just in case they serve vegan food only. I think I have other I mean, problems. She's doing it for good reason. She has asked for meat and milk to be off of prison menus to actually help the planet and the health of federal inmates and to also save some money. And she's asking for beans, rice, lentils, pasta, fruits and veggies instead um, because she says it costs a fraction, fraction of the cost of meats and cheeses. And also, these items don't need to be refrigerated. So that actually sounds like a pretty I have two decent words. plan. I have only two words for this. Prison riot. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous salad. <laughs> you don't make friends with salad. My husband is like, I am never going to do anything illegal. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just to avoid the lentils. Like <laughs> Let's move on to Tay-Tay because I love talking about yes. Taylor Swift. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an unabashed fan. Yes. She is going to receive the Artist of the Decade Award at the AMAs this year. Um she holds the record for most wins by a female performer in history. Pretty pretty amazing. Like, say what you will about her. Like, she's done some fantastic things. Um, Haters going to hate. Why does she get so much hate, Laura? I think Taylor Swift is kind of social on social media very annoying. You know, she's always in a feud with someone. She's being the victim of something or she's fighting with another person. And people are getting frustrated. The first few times, it's interesting. You know, what's Taylor doing? Why is, why is there tension? But now it's like, come on. I think oh. she needs to move past that. But think about this. In her 13-year career, she has 23 wins under her belt. That's like you got to give her credit. What I thought was so interesting as part of the interview that we had with her is her saying that, you know, critics have sort of written off her songwriting as a quote unquote trick as opposed to a skill because, you know, so many of her songs are about breakups or personal things and that somehow that self-confessional takes away from her skill as a songwriter. End of the day, those are catchy songs. I think she has a huge fan base, even though, you know, perhaps I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan. I know her fans are hardcore. They line up. They're, you know, devoted fans. And I think it speaks to how universal her lyrics are and how those themes of heartbreak and friendship issues like really resonate. You need to calm down. You're being too loud. I got to say, surgeons like her both that's of a, my... That's a lyric. That's not, oh, you're I'm not, not telling not, me no. to calm down? Okay. That's a Taylor Swift lyric. <laughs> no, Am I, I the know. only one listening both to pop culture labors, here? the surgeons had <laughs> Taylor Swift playing. They you're, Doctors love some Taylor Swift I'm as sorry, well. surgeons? So, <laughs> in my deliveries... <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I, they, did, I just caught the surgeons yeah, part. <laughs> they, they had Taylor Swift on in the background. All right, well, so, then, let's ask this question then. If Taylor Swift is not the artist of the decade, who is? Kanye West. I was going to say Justin Bieber. 
You go Biebs on I that. I love Justin Bieber, you love, yeah. Wait a second. You find Tay-Tay annoying, but Biebs are going to sign <laughs> I up don't for? know. There's something about his bad boy persona, you know? He just, he's made a lot of mistakes, but then he repents, and then, I don't know. There's something endearing <laughs> oh, about God. Justin Bieber. I really like him. Oh, you talk about men and their weird peculiarities, but women with the, I can fix him. I can fix him. It's still a strong thing. He wants thing. to save the Biebs. <laughs> I do, I do. I'm you want to reach out and save the Biebs. I, I agree with you i think kanye i don't think there's anybody who can beat kanye i mean i just i'm absolutely love the new record i, mm-hmm. I love the uh, gospel tinged elements of it uh and and i i think life of pablo is one of the great records of the mm-hmm. last 10 years yeah i mean he's not my favorite human being right you got to separate the two yeah. i think don't you do you not I mean, with Kanye, you know, he has said some things in the past that seemed really outlandish at the time. And now you look back and you're like, oh, you might have made a valid point. You know, mm-hmm. I think he is very outspoken, which can rub people the long way. But if you think about his music, he is very revolutionary. So, And a provocateur. And I don't think you have to, uh, you know, agree with what people say. And I think, you, I, I think you know, whether we're talking about Biebs, whether we're talking about Taylor Swift, or, or whether we're talking about Kanye, all three of them have this sort of public personas that... Really, I think you can divorce from the music. And if you listen to the music and take the art as a whole, I think you have to say, well, those are all, all three of them, impressive bodies of work. Hey, listen, listen. What about Drake? Ooh, I was thinking that too. I don't think he deserves a decade, though. You don't, he doesn't get a whole decade? Nah. I feel like, I okay, I, I could make an argument for Drake. He had like 10 songs in the top 10. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I... I guess I feel, about, and I'm a huge Drake fan, but I kind of put Drake in the Lenny Kravitz category. You what? know what I mean? Like hit maker, but not stylistic innovator. You know what I'm saying? Like hit after hit after hit, and you got to respect that, but not an innovator in his own right. I feel like he's really memefied a lot of music videos, so he's very smart in, in his dancing and his music videos. He knows, or he has a team that knows, he's going to be memed really easily. And I think in that way, he's a bit of an innovator. He's really captivated his audience and taken to social media. And I don't know, I, I do think Drake actually has been a bit of a trailblazer. All right, I like that. Okay, yeah. I'll take that point. I'm still stuck on, I don't know if I can always separate the artist from the art. I'm thinking right now because R. Kelly's on my mind with uh. his toe and he wasn't able to make it to court because of its infected toe. And I just, you heard about this this week, Yeah. Right? And I just, I can't, you can't always separate the artist I think from there's the a art. good point there. And obviously we, th- that brings Michael to, to mind is can we, can we ever play Michael again? Did you notice, by the way, this Halloween, how often did you hear Thriller? I did not put Michael Jackson on my Halloween playlist this year. Nobody, and I mean nobody played Thriller this year. And isn't that interesting? Mm. We are out of time. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for helping me round out the week. And thank you to you for joining me. Always great to spend some time with you.